there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Hey, it's your host, Carter. I wanted to give you a little bit of a warning. Kids who are under the age of 13 might find some parts of our show a little bit scary, so listener discretion is advised. Now, enjoy the show. Shh! You'll wake the sleeping giant. Uh-oh. Now we're in for it. What on earth is going on down here? Hiya, Georgie. Care to join us? Oh, for God's sakes, Lenore, it's after midnight. I'm in no mood for a party. Is it? Don't act dumb. At least I can act. That was cruel. Bill, what are you doing here? I I have a mind to throw you out. Don't be bored, Georgie. Have a nightcap. It'll calm your nerves. I don't need to be calm. I was sound asleep until I thought someone was breaking into the house. Not to worry. All of our guests are here by invitation. And it wasn't a window, just a lamp. Handpicked by Mrs. Mannix, I'm sure. Tony's got nothing to do with this. She's got everything to do with this. And this. And this, too. Everything in the whole house has her stink on it. You're drunk. You bet I am. You're welcome to go on embarrassing yourself as much as you like. But if you leave me out of it, that would be swell. Leave yourself. We were having a fine time until you showed up. (sighs) Carol, Bill, Lenore, it's been a pleasure. Good night. There goes your hero, Mr. Dramatic. He's probably going to kill himself now. That's him opening a drawer. Now he's taking out his gun. I bet he's putting it to his head right now. Sissy can't even get up the guts to... Welcome to Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Wendy McKenzie. Today, we open our investigation into the death of George Reeves. The actor best known for playing the dual roles of Clark Kent and Superman in one of TV's first popular narrative series, The Adventures of Superman. Reeves' death was particularly tragic because he was so beloved by the children who watched his show internationally. From the outside, it seemed like he had the world on a string. Which is part of the reason many didn't buy it when authorities ruled his death a suicide. To the public, he was at the height of his success. But privately, George Reeves hated being a TV actor and longed for a more prestigious career on the big screen. The circumstances surrounding George Reeves' death remain mysterious despite years of public attention and investigation. The gamut of suspects runs from his feisty fiance to his jilted ex-lover to a studio fixer with mob ties known as one of the most powerful and dangerous men in Hollywood. 
Because although Superman triumphed over supervillains week after week, he had some very human enemies who wanted to see him dead. If you want to review an episode of Unsolved Murders or to hear our investigation into other cases, you can find them all on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or any other podcast directory, as well as our website, parcast.com. That's parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. And make sure you don't miss anything by subscribing. A new episode of Unsolved Murders is released every Tuesday. Don't forget to visit our Facebook page, Parcast, to join the conversation. In the years following the Second World War, the Hollywood studio system was falling apart. Thanks to the rise of the home television set. Leading television experts, cameramen, soundmen, engineers, choose Motorola. Leading television stars like Ruth Hussey, Edward Arnold, and Lorraine Day say, See me at my best. See me on a Motorola. In 1945, there were fewer than 7,000 TV sets in all of the United States. But by 1950, there were over 5 million. At the time, most TV telecasts depicted live events like news, theatrical performances, variety shows, and sports. There were some narrative series on the air, but in 1951, there were three shows in development that would change the TV landscape for good. One was I Love Lucy. The second was Dragnet. And the third was... Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. The character of Superman was developed by two high school students, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, who were living in Ohio in 1933. Five years later, they sold their rights to the series and character to Detective Comics. Better known as DC Comics. For only $130. Well, that's the equivalent of about $2,000 by today's standards, but still, not a great deal. The boys were convinced Superman would never be a success and felt lucky just for the chance to see their character in print. I don't know, Jerry. Superman is ours. I can't feel good about selling him off to any old bum. If the thought of seeing your name in print doesn't make you feel good, I don't know what will. Picture it, drawn by Joe Schuster. I guess 130 clams ain't bad either. My ma could use it. Forget your ma. That means we can go to the pictures 520 times. But that didn't last long. Superman debuted on the cover of Action Comics in the spring of 1938 and was an instant success. The following year, Superman appeared as a daily comic in newspapers nationwide. By 1941, he had an estimated readership of 20 million, and the character's popularity sustained through the duration of the Second World War and beyond. So when the television series went into development 10 years later, it was pretty much guaranteed to be a huge success. Now, today's TV execs would say it had a built-in audience. Before filming even began, Kellogg's signed on as an official sponsor, assuming a tie-in between kids' serials and the young fans sure to watch the show. More than 250 men auditioned to play the dual roles of the mild-mannered Clark Kent and the Man of Steel. But with his powerful athletic build and chiseled good looks, the part went to George Reeves. But George had mixed feelings about donning that red cape. Despite its popularity, television was still an emerging medium at the time. Serious film actors scoffed at the idea of slumming it by appearing on the small screen. Which is exactly how George felt when he landed the lead role. Places, everybody. Back to one. Now, Superman, this is the big moment. The moment when you first come face to face with the Mole Men. I was in Gone with the Wind. How did it come to this? 
George Kiefer Brewer was born in Woodstock, Iowa in 1913. His parents married after his mother realized she was pregnant. And divorced just a few months after George was born. George's mother, Helen, took the baby boy in the family car and drove all the way from Iowa to Pasadena, California. I've had enough of this snow and this ice and this crummy one-horse town. I'm going out west where the sun shines all year long. Helen settled in Pasadena and shortly thereafter remarried, this time to a bank auditor named Frank Basolo. Little George grew up to be six foot two, 190 pounds, and to his mother's despair, a competitive junior college boxer. Helen hated George's boxing and instead encouraged him to join the prestigious Pasadena Playhouse. The Playhouse was a popular haunt for movie studio talent scouts. Stars like William Holden and Robert Mitchum got their start there. As did Dustin Hoffman and Gene Hackman years later. During his time at the Playhouse, George Bessolo changed his name to Reeves. He was also offered his first real film role as one of the red-headed Tartan twins who appear in the first scene of Gone with the Wind. Oh, excuse me. This is my first day. Do you know where I'm supposed to go? Grab that cable, run it up to the guys on stage two. Oh, no, no. I- I'm an actor. Huh? Big fellow, aren't you? They'll be looking for you in wardrobe, right around the corner. Shortly after that, Warner Brothers offered him a contract. How would you like to come work for the Warner Brothers? And he married a sweetheart and fellow Playhouse actor, Miss Eleonora Needles. What do you say, Nora? Will you marry me? Will I ever? George felt like his life was starting to take off. Until it didn't. Warner cast him in minor parts in five films, but he repeatedly lost roles to bigger stars like Ronald Reagan and James Cagney. Hoping to fare better, George left for 20th Century Fox. But after another dissatisfying experience at Fox, he moved on to Paramount. His career stalled again when he was drafted into World War II. He was assigned to the U.S. Army Air Force and performed in the USAAF's Broadway show Winged Victory. The Broadway run was followed by a national tour and a movie version. Reeves was then transferred to the Army Air Force first motion picture unit, where he made training films. He returned to Hollywood after the war and through 1949, appeared in a succession of two-reelers, B-films, and serial westerns without landing a single solid lead. The late 1940s were a difficult time for George. In October of 1950, he and Eleonora divorced. The exact reasons are unclear, but she remarried less than a month later, so it seems like she may have been the one to call it quits. Divorced, disillusioned, and discouraged, George left Hollywood to pursue acting in New York City. He had only been on the East Coast for a few months when the casting call for The Adventures of Superman was announced. In early May of 1951, Flamingo Films purchased the TV rights for The New Adventures of Superman. Five days later, a production company was formed to produce the serial. Production continued at a breakneck pace, shooting five complete episodes every 12 days. Just to give you a little context, today's TV dramas typically require nine very full days of shooting to produce a single episode. Five episodes in 12 days is downright grueling. The wheels on the train were moving fast, and George was on the ride whether he liked it or not. And he almost certainly did not. From the get-go, everything about the process struck him as shabby and wrong. The wool Superman suit was hot and uncomfortable. The boots fit poorly because they were made for Kirk Allen, the actor who portrayed the role on film, but refused to make the leap to TV. It was a far cry from his days trotting the boards for Eugene O'Neill at the Pasadena Playhouse, or sharing the magnificent MGM sets with Clark Gable. Well, this is it. Welcome to the bottom of the barrel. 
Cheers. But in the very first few days of filming, something happened. George met the woman who would go on to become a leading lady in his personal life for nearly a decade. Tony Mannix, one of the prime suspects in his murder. A woman married to one of the most intimidating men in Hollywood. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. And now, back to Unsolved Murders. Before she became Tony Mannix, Tony Lanier began her career in the industry as one of the famed Ziegfeld Follies girls. She began an affair with studio fixer Eddie Mannix sometime in the mid-30s. The two went public with their relationship after Eddie's wife died in a car accident in 1937. Nice guy. At least they had the decency to wait until the poor woman had passed to air their dirty laundry. Eddie Mannix was a lot of things, but nice almost certainly wasn't one of them. His first wife had petitioned for divorce, citing physical abuse as well as his many affairs. It's even rumored that her car accident may have been a setup arranged by Eddie himself. Well, the name Eddie Mannix may not ring a bell for most people these days, but during the golden age of the studio system, he was one of the most well-known and powerful people in Tinseltown. Eddie was once the vice president of MGM and a well-known studio fixer. His nickname around the town was The Bulldog. Along with his partner, Howard Strickling, who handled studio publicity, Mannix was responsible for cleaning up any and all scandals that could be traced back to the studio or its stars. A far cry from today's tabloid celebs, who seemed to chase headlines with their outrageous behavior. MGM stars were expected to follow a strict code of behavior so as not to mar their carefully cultivated public images. But, as you might imagine, wrangling studio stars was more than a full-time job. And Mannix made a career out of cleaning up messy celebrity situations. Affairs, pregnancies, addictions, embarrassing relatives, legal trouble, even the occasional murder. Eddie handled it all and had enough friends on both sides of the law to make any problem go away. Mannix. Christ, again? (sighs) Have the boys meet me around the back with the body. And when I say the back, I mean the back this time. Not the front. Bunch of numbskull knuckleheads. What is it this time? Hit and run? Overdose? Somebody get iced? Don't worry about it. I'm not worried. Just curious. Who doesn't love a good scandal? That's why you're a liability, sweetheart. Don't wait up for me. Not the kind of guy you want to mess with. But Tony was a force in her own right. Fierce and fabulous, she was well known for her body sense of humor. L.A. gangster Mickey Cohen is said to have described her as the only woman in Hollywood with any balls. Tony wasn't working at the time, but she might have been on the back lot for any number of reasons the day she swung by the Superman set. Maybe visiting a friend or popping in on her way to or from a lunch meeting. However it happened, George caught her eye right away. Who is that? I haven't seen a set of shoulders like those since Johnny Weissmuller. According to those who saw them firsthand, the chemistry between Tony and George was undeniable right from the start. And although she had nothing to do with the production, Tony could be spotted visiting George on set several days of the week. Hollywood was scandalized by their public appearances together and the flagrant flaunting of their relationship. She's back again. That's four days this week she's brought him his lunch. Lunch is a strong word for it. 
Unless she's hiding a sandwich in that bottle of hooch. Have you heard him calling her Mama Tony? Yes. And she keeps calling boy in that phony British accent of hers. The whole thing gives me the heebie-jeebies. I'd love to get Eddie's take on this situation. Oh, I wouldn't. That guy's meaner than a wet cat. George ought to watch his step if he knows what's good for him. There's no telling what Eddie Mannix might do to a guy stepping out with his wife. Despite all the gossip, very few people knew the truth. Not only did Eddie Mannix know about his wife's affair with George Reeves, but they had his blessing. By all accounts, Tony and Eddie had what today's progressive couples would call an open relationship. Each of them were linked to a number of other partners, yet they stayed together for nearly 30 years. When Tony and George met in 1951, she was a stunning 46 and he was 35. Eddie, however, was an ailing 60. And by all accounts, at that time, Eddie's heart disease was so bad that he never knew which breath would be his last. So he wanted to know that Tony would be, well, cared for after he was gone. Apparently, it was understood between the three of them that when Eddie died, Tony and George would marry each other. Tony and Eddie had tolerated each other's dalliances in the past, but Eddie actually took a liking to George. They even went on vacations together. George, Tony, Eddie, and Eddie's mistress of the moment. The fact was that most people liked George. Almost everyone who knew him agreed that George was an incredibly likable guy. Those who worked with him described him as being genuinely nice and funny, a practical joker, but a consummate professional. Despite his personal misgivings about working in TV, he always tried to keep the mood up during the show's relentless shooting schedule. On a more basic level, he had an incredibly generous nature. Jack Larson, the actor who played Jimmy Olsen in the series, said that George was a sucker for a hard luck story and good for a hundred bucks anywhere, anytime. Of course, he could afford to be generous, with Tony footing the bill for his celebrity lifestyle. Well, the Mannixes even set George up in a small house on Benedict Canyon in Beverly Hills, just two miles north of Sunset Boulevard. And Eddie attended the housewarming party in the home personally decorated by Tony. All right, everybody. Who wants champagne? Not a bad little spot, hey, Georgie boy? I gotta admit, I could get used to this. The view isn't much to look at, but I can't say I mind being tucked away from the world up here. My own little fortress of solitude. Tony did a nice polish job on the joint, didn't she? I'll say. Our girl's got an eye for good taste, that's for sure. Can I give you a light there? <coughs> Very kind of you, boy. <coughs> Very kind. Throughout the 1950s, things were looking up for George Reeves. He still wasn't thrilled about the turn his career had taken, but in many ways he made the best of it. Well, the Superman series was a spectacular international phenomenon. Though he disliked being a TV actor, George did have a genuine affection for his young fans. Well, he was a tireless fundraiser and made numerous publicity appearances as the Man of Steel. Though he preferred to appear not wearing his signature suit and cape. Well, the suit was certainly ill-fitting and uncomfortable. But in addition, Reeves claimed he was apprehensive about how children would react to seeing the suit in person. And it turns out he was right. Plenty of kids wanted to test his super abilities by throwing rocks or kicking him. Well, there's a famous story of a little boy who had waited in line to meet his hero, holding his father's pistol. Hello there, young man. It's a pleasure to meet you. You must have been waiting in that line for a long time. I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. Are you really the real Superman? Why, of course. Prove it. And how would you like me to do that? Let me shoot you. Pardon me? Whoa. Easy there, son. 
Where did you get that? He's got a gun! Is this part of the act? This has got to be part of an act. This is my daddy's real life gun, and I just want to see if the bullets bounce off you, just like they do on the TV. George was terrified, but managed to stay in character. Of course they will. But unfortunately, we can't put that to the test here. When the bullets bounce off me, they may very well ricochet into the crowd, hurting some of the other little girls and boys very badly. And the gun over, son. I can bet your father didn't give that to you, and you shouldn't have taken it. Ah, oh, shucks. Thank you. I know it's hard, but you did the right thing. Well, that was quick thinking. Faster than a bullet. Now, it's possible. George made up that story himself as an excuse not to wear the suit. But there did come a point where he flat out refused to make any public appearances in costume. Well, he managed to play his young audience in other ways. He asked friends in the props department to create foam dumbbells and balsa wood planks to break to help him sell kids on the illusion of his super strength. And they loved him for it. Throughout the 50s, George Reeves' Superman became an international superstar. Although filming on Superman began in 1951, the series didn't air until two years later. And for George, that two-year gap may very well have been what destroyed his chances of becoming a serious film actor once and for all. Well, before Superman premiered, George had played a part in From Here to Eternity, the melodrama starring Burt Lancaster and Deborah Carr destined to become a classic. By the time From Here to Eternity was in previews, Superman's popularity had skyrocketed. George's face was everywhere. For most actors, that kind of fame would have been a dream come true. But for George, it spelled disaster. There's nothing that can end an actor's career faster than being typecast on a kid's program. It's rumored that the producers on From Here to Eternity felt that Reeves's super-recognizable persona skewed the movie. Before the film was released in the summer of 1953, George's part had been cut out completely. Just when I think I've got hope, they swat it down like a housefly. Reeves never played anything aside from Superman ever again. The television series ran from 1952 to 1958, with the last season wrapping a year before in 1957. And by 1959, Reeves had been unemployed for two years. Directionless, out of shape, and typecast into oblivion. Through all this time, George maintained his relationship with Tony Mannix. Although, as 1958 came to a close, their relationship had started to deteriorate. Buck up, old boy. You know I hate to see you so glum. I'm sorry, Mama. I know I'm no fun to be around these days. Of course you are. You're just hiding all your fun parts behind a couple extra pounds of padding. Thanks a lot. Oh, my gorgeous boy. You know I'm only teasing. Nothing in the world could ever make me love you any less. Just makes me sad to see you so sad. Could have fooled me. George, George, where are you going? Out. George. But in the fall of 1958, George met Lenore Lemon. Lenore was a beautiful New York socialite. With a wild side. And the Orioles have the lead over the Yankees. Oh, pardon me. Watch it. I've got a mean left hook. <laughs> I'd hate to see it. You think I'm kidding. Well, I imagine a girl as pretty as you would need to learn how to throw some elbows if you want to keep hanging around a joy like this. Who said anything about wanting? I got tossed out of every other respectable joint in town. Toot's the only one who will have me anymore. Tossed out? Whatever for? Remember that left hook I told you about? <laughs> my name's George. Lenore Lemon. It's a pleasure to meet you, Miss Lemon. Charmed, I'm sure. Say, don't I know you from somewhere? 
Unfortunately, yes, uh, you probably do. Raven-haired and statuesque, Lenore had a fiery personality and a short fuse. By the age of 20, she had been banned from both the store club and El Morocco for brawling with other women. Yikes. I guess she's what you would call a real firecracker. As you might imagine, George and Lenore's relationship was passionate. After only eight months, they planned to marry in June before jetting off to Spain for a honeymoon, then on to Australia, where Reeves was contracted to make over $20,000 by doing public appearances as Superman. An Aussie TV network had just acquired the series, and local viewers were anxious to meet the Man of Steel himself. Run away with me. Where to? I'm serious. I'm due to tour Australia in the summer. Don't make me go alone. What do you need me dragging you down for? Won't you want the freedom to meet and greet your adoring fans one-on-one? A girl in every port and all that. No, no, it's not like that at all. It's awful being on the road alone. I'd be so lonesome without you. And I'd like it even more if you were wearing this. (gasps) That's some kind of rock, Georgie. Well... You're some kind of girl. What do you say? Yes! Sometime during that same year, George finally ended his relationship with Tony. She did not take it well. I'm sorry, Mama. Don't call me that. Tony, listen. Why are you doing this to us? This doesn't have to change anything. It's not fair to Lenore. I won't do this to her. But we came first. We had a good run, Mama, but... But nothing. I swear to God, Georgie, you're going to regret this. Maybe I will. But for now, I know this is the right thing to do. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. Now, the story continues. For a short time, George thought he might be happy with Lenore. She moved into the Benedict Canyon home, and the two planned to marry early in the summer of 1959. But throughout the spring some strange things began to happen. Over the course of several weeks, George was involved in three strange automobile mishaps, each that nearly ended his life. That sounds familiar. Similar to the story of the first Mrs. Mannix's untimely demise. Mm -hmm. That's what I was thinking. But maybe we're jumping to conclusions. Car accidents are common, especially in Los Angeles. Yeah, but three in three months? Uh, That does seem suspicious. The first incident was especially dramatic. Reeves was nearly crushed between two trucks while driving on the freeway. What the hell are these guys doing? They're going to get us all killed. The second time, a speeding car nearly clipped him. Holy smokes, mister. Are you okay? (coughs) I think so. Did you see that? That car came out of nowhere. And the third time, Reeves' brakes failed while he drove along a narrow, twisting road. Later at the mechanic, it was discovered that all of the brake fluid had been drained from the hydraulic system. What the... what... what the blazes is going on? I can't stop! It's a head-scratcher, I'll tell you what. Everything seems to be in perfect working order. Except for that missing brake fluid. If you ask me, someone did that on purpose. Brake fluid don't go missing by accident. What, do you think someone's trying to kill me? I may be an actor, but that sounds a little melodramatic. George's close friend and business manager, Arthur Weissman, absolutely believed that someone was after George. How can you be so cavalier about this? This is the third time. The mechanic came right out and said someone has been tinkering with the brakes. Arthur, you sound like one of these conspiracy nuts. Next you'll be telling me there's lizard people living in the sewers. Someone has got your number. I don't like to start rumors, but you and I both have a pretty good idea of who that might be. 
if Eddie Mannix wanted to have me bumped off, he had plenty of opportunities to do it years ago. I don't claim to have all the answers. Just please take care of yourself, George. George continued to brush off the warnings until about a month later. George began receiving mysterious phone calls on his private landline. Hello? Hello? Is someone there? Most calls came late at night, but sometimes there were 20 or more each day. A lot of the calls were simply hang-ups. But after a few explicit death threats, George filed a report with the Beverly Hills PD and a complaint with the Los Angeles DA's office. Hello? I will see you dead, George Reeves. I am going to come to your house, and I am going to kill you. And I will smile as I watch the life drain from your body. I don't know what you want from me. But you've got a lot of nerve calling here all hours of the night. This is harassment. Do you hear me? He even went so far as to suggest a name for the person he suspected of the threats. Tony Mannix. That's T-O-N-I. But when the DA's office investigated, they learned that Tony herself had been receiving the same calls. So it was Eddie? Everyone in town knew that Eddie had done some dirty deeds in his lifetime, and he could easily use his contacts to hire a couple of production trucks to target George on the freeway and make it look like an accident. Even if everyone agreed that Eddie Mannix had the makings of a true villain, why now? Why would he threaten and harass George Reeves after all the years that they knew each other? Well, maybe he was trying to get even on Tony's behalf after George broke her heart. Well, then why would he send her threatening messages, too? Well, maybe the calls were a ruse, and Tony herself had used some of Eddie's underworld contacts to make arrangements to take care of George on her own. Whatever the case, it all came to a head on the night of June 15, 1959. Around 6.30 in the evening, Lenore Lemon served dinner for three in the home that she shared with George. The one on Benedict Canyon. The very same. Who was the third dinner guest? The writer Robert Condon, who was staying at the house. A friend? Not really. Condon was an author, ghostwriting an autobiography of the prize fighter Archie Moore. Wait, wait, then why on earth was he staying with George and Lenore? Well, in the time following the end of the Superman series, George's main source of income was more of these public appearances. He was scheduled to fight Archie Moore just three days after he was killed. Who knew celebrity boxing has such a long history? A time-honored Hollywood tradition. So if Condon was writing about more, what was he doing with Reeves? It seems like he was checking out the competition. That's a little odd. It is, but still perfectly explainable. So what did Condon have to say about the evening? Condon reported that at dinner, Lenore and Reeves got into an argument, but afterward the three settled into the living room to watch TV together. They had all been drinking and continued to do so, and about midnight, Everyone went to bed. That's it? Unfortunately for George Reeves, no. Sometime between 1 a.m. and 1.30, Lenore's friend Carol Von Ronkel came by the house with a man named William Bliss. Not exactly visiting hours. Maybe not for most people, but for a party girl like Lenore, late night gatherings were nothing unusual, despite George's disapproval. Sorry to just drop in on you like this, but I know you're always good for a nightcap. Come in, darling. You read my mind. Hey there, Lenore. Thanks for being a sport. You got anything in the way of whiskey? According to the LA Times report, Reeves came downstairs enraged at being disturbed by the late night guests. What on earth is going on down here? Hiya, Georgie. 
care to join us? For God's sakes, Lenore. I'm in no mood for a party. It's after midnight. Reeves poured himself a drink and returned to his room. And in a truly eerie moment, Lenore predicted aloud to her guests that George was going to shoot himself mere moments before the gunshot rocked the house. There goes your hero, Mr. Dramatic. He's probably going to kill himself now. That's him opening the drawer. And now he's taking out his gun. I bet he's putting it to his head, right? Now... Sissy... Can't even get up the guts to... Join us next time when William Bliss discovers the body of George Reeves. George, quit playing. The women are half hysterical. George! Oh, God. Shot through the head with a gun that he kept by his bedside. But what really happened to Superman? Depressed by his career, did he turn the gun on himself in an act of despair? I know I could have been somebody. I just kept getting the bum rap. Every time. Or was it a prank gone horribly wrong? Did the argument with his fiance get out of hand? Thought he was playing. He does it. Did it. All the time. I didn't think he'd really go through with it. Georgie, I didn't mean it. What have I done? Or was it something more sinister? A premeditated act of revenge by a former lover? I swear to God, Georgie, you're gonna regret this. No one says no to me. I sign the checks, I call the shots. Or her tough guy husband. Don't worry, baby. I can make all of this go away. A shoddy investigation. Hey boss, shouldn't we be testing for prints? What for? It's an open and shut case. Guy shot himself, there's nothing to investigate here. But if he shot himself, how did he get the shell under his back? You got cotton in your ears? I said open and shut. Wrap him up and get him down to the morgue. Gonna be a hot one today. George's distraught mother hires an investigator to reopen the case. I know my son. He did not kill himself. He wouldn't. You've got to help me find the man who did. Because every hero has a nemesis. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. But which villain was it who brought down the Man of Steel? Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory, or through our website, parcast.com. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T.com. A new episode of Unsolved Murders comes out every Tuesday. Let us know what you think and join the conversation on our ParCast Facebook page. You can tweet us at ParCast Network. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T Network. We thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us for the next installment. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Wendy McKenzie. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Ron and Max Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro with production assistance by Joel Stein, and written by Lauren Cannon. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Matt Cannon, Mike Capozzi, Kimberly Holland, Steve Pinto, Gregory Paulson, and Vanessa Richardson. 